Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Um, my name is Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum for European Philosophy, um, and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event, in which are three speakers, Andina Salbach, Lynn Turner, and John O'Melica, will all be thinking about animals. And we will also be celebrating the launch of this fantastic volume, uh, the Edinburgh Companion to Animal Studies, which is on special offer, I think, if you're feeling a bit flush. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how much it is. Um, so perhaps, um, Lynn and Undina, we could start with you. Um, so you've been involved in editing the volume. Why? Why animals? Why, why, why are you thinking about animals now? Do you want to kick yes, off? Yes, I can begin. Um, well, I suppose for me as a researcher, um, when you encounter something new, you often bring um, concepts to it. You study it, you look at what you're researching. Um, but to me, um, what's so exciting about working in animal studies is that other animals are so diverse and confounding and put pressure back on the values I have and the concepts I use and the way I do my research. So to me, it's a field which, I suppose, which brings challenges back to me as a researcher. And, um, I mean, this particularly came for me because I began my work looking at insects. <laughs> um, which <laughs> generally um, don't fit neatly into any categories um, uh, in terms of um, how we might care for them or how we might study them. They're often kind of quite incredible confounding creatures. And so, yeah, to me, you know, I guess I would see animal studies as always already coming out of a, a, an entanglement with a much larger, more than human world and that that it, it asks these pressing questions to me as a researcher back to how can I listen and study that, you know, in a way that doesn't just collapse, you know, the animals that I'm researching and researching with back into the categories that I have to start with. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a really nice, interesting... Um, uh, and dynamic relationship between in, inside the academy, because you know we do kind of live, kind of squirreled down uh, in the university <laughs> to, some, to some extent, but also you know a, a real kind of living uh, relationship to the outside of the academy, you know, to the, to the world that we encounter, to the world that we you know we walk through, walk on, sometimes notice, sometimes don't notice, and I think that. Right now, because I mean, your question, Danielle, was was about animal studies now in it's mm. 2018. Yeah, in, yeah. You know, in, in, and in there's London. a real re reading the, the introduction to the book. There's a real sense of the urgency of this kind of work. Why is it so urgent? Yeah, right now. Right. Well, I think that um, to respond to the question the question of urgency, when I, I have to go yeah. to the, the the moment that, that I actually wanted to say a little bit later, but. Um, and this affects me in, in all kinds of like I think, I think psychobiographic ways. You know, it speaks to my kind of you know my you know my life and my emotional life and my adult life and my child life, which is that um, only about four years ago, you know, a major 
um, conservation <coughs> organisation, the World Wildlife Fund, um, announced, and I heard this, I think it was actually on the radio, I was waking up one morning, so it was the first thing I heard um, that day. Over the last um, 40 years or so, the world, like not, you know, my backyard or uh, somewhere I've never been, the world has lost 50% um, of its wildlife. And that, that figure and that move just really kind of um, captured me in a really alarmed way. That okay, so that does mean that if, if I make it to be an old woman, a, re a really old woman, I'm totally going to outdo my nan 87. So if I, if I turn 87, that probably means, you know, no wildlife, very little, you know, a, a massively shrinking um, environment of other living species. And, and I, I can't, still can't get past that kind of picture of um, a shrinking, depleting um, a, array of life. Um, and, and that's just um, to speak to uh, a kind of major arc from kind of conservation without thinking about you know, histories of animal studies um, that might have um, more immediate um, sets of urgencies like what's happening on the farm? You know, what's happening in, in the... Um, in our kitchen. In the kitchen. What's happening in the slaughterhouse? What's happening in the laboratory producing medicines? What's happening for the advancement of science? And how are all of these fields that, you know, in modernity we feel, you know, are, you know, feats of wonder sometimes, you know, always, almost always dependent on, on animal bodies. Thank you. So... Is what you're suggesting that this is what the book is doing in a sense, is speaking for those different environments and those different situations, is saying this is the situation of crisis even. Here are some things we can do. Is it, is it prescriptive in that sense or is it what kind of task does well, the... Maybe to, uh, to, to begin to answer your question, yeah. we're going to rebel. <laughs> and maybe we'll read a little bit from the book. And I don't want to stop that question, but perhaps we can come back to it just to give you a feel of you know, of, of, of some of the different kinds of, um, I suppose, urgencies and questions in the book. Is, is that all right? That's great. And I think that, yeah. um, Beth, if we could have the image of the book yeah. up, that would be super. I know you're mm. also multitasking and tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but mm. I think that one of the things that... Uh, <laughs> I'm going I'm I'm to fill in the gap before we get to the PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> must tweet, must tweet. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, time lag. I'm listening to the audio stream. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so shall we begin? We, we're just going to um, read a little, little bit from the introduction. It's always good to begin an event with a, with a story and a picture, a picture book. Um, and, um, and then maybe we'll talk just a little bit about, about the book and how we see it. So, Lynn, would you like to I will start. Mm. Um, not from the very beginning, um, but close to. So tigers may not want to break bread with us or keep our conspicuous company around a literal table. Nevertheless, we are unavoidably companions in Donna Haraway. Donna Haraway is an American kind of philosopher of science. Um, nevertheless, we are unavoidably companions in Haraway's sense 
becoming with others in diverse and unexpected ways, for our opening foray, we turn to a particular tiger. Black Tiger is an animal study made by expedition-based artist duo Ollie and Susie um, in one of the tiger reserves of Uttar Pradesh in India during 1998. A large sheet of paper is held up like a banner to be photographed. Black ink runs in varied densities across the sheet of paper, settling into the outline of a tiger ambling along. The narrow rim between the paper and the photograph edge exposes glimpses of sand, sky, buildings, trees, grass, and the distant outline of a man. This is possibly one of the trackers who helped the artists follow the tiger, not to hunt, but in order to paint her picture. Hands on either side of the drawing bear it aloft, making sure it is seen. The tiger is walking, head down, tail curled, belly digesting. In her if, if her coat has stripes, they're obscured. Her painted legs poised to leave paw prints in the sand are cropped by the bottom edge of the paper. The title used by the artist does not refer to a species or subspecies of tiger, but to the coloration produced by pseudo-melanism, which disperses the familiar pattern and solidity of stripes. This is an effect thought to be produced by inbreeding due to the restricted gene pools of now depleted populations. While numbers of Bengal tigers are today increasing due to conservation efforts, they remain listed as endangered. That is to say, they are, they are at serious risk of extinction in the foreseeable future. Held up like a banner, black tiger can be read as a call to activism, a rallying point to draw in new publics, new communities, but the suspended paper is also a subtle membrane between diverse ecologies, expanding potential sites of political action by bringing various edges, disjunctions, infestations, exposures, and collaborations to the fore. These uncertain pictorial edges are often edited out when we represent or address animals, but they have become pressing for animal studies scholarship, given the entangled ways that different lives animals and otherwise come to matter. Um, so we wanted to pick up a little bit on, on the way that we um, uh, used a kind of reading of, uh, of Black Tiger uh, to open up the concerns of the companion. Um, and it, it wasn't just that you know, we liked the work of Ollie and Susie, which I mean, we do. Um, and I would certainly like to be you know, traveling around the world drawing, whether it's anacondas or tarantulas or wild dogs or tigers. In situ. <laughs> in situ, I mean, amazing. But there is, there's something very interesting about the ways in which they show their work and this particular type of photography um, as a showing of the drawing and a showing of the drawing that is held up and a showing of the drawing that is held up by human hands and a showing of the drawing that is held up by human hands that are different hands, that are spatialized quite oddly, um, and that also um, allow for uh, tensions in focus between the, the foreground of the drawing, the background of a man observing and seeing the other side. You know, there is something that is not seen. Um, 
allow us to kind of start reflecting on what it is to produce this animal study, which the, you know, the drawing also is. Um, there's something quite peculiar about this dispersal of hands. Um, and a, a side note, that there's actually a lot of attention to what it is that the human might be, might think of itself as, or might not be throughout <coughs> the essays here. Um, but I, I draw attention, I draw your attention to this question of the hand and the hands because of the ways that um, the, the um, Western philosophy has had a very, uh, very strong um, figural, figurative interest in the idea of the human hand, and it's always singular, it's always the hand, the hand that grasps, the hand that gives, the hand that signs, the hand that makes. Um, but here we have two different hands. And, and in a certain sense, you know, the kind of artist figure that is making this work becomes quite strange as, as a living entity. And so I think that sort of question in terms of what different kinds of collaborations that animal studies research might require, you know, so rather than it being the singular researcher or the singular artist, there are kind of far more collaborative, far more kind of complicated um, perhaps relationships in order for us to think about and to consider animals. Um, and so to me, one of the edges of the drawing that really fascinated me is that space between the edge of the painting you know, and the edge of the actual image because they're not just the, the, the different hands and the figure in there, but there's earth and there's air and there's a, there's a little bit of a building. Um, and so to me, you know, a lot of my research, I'm really interested in those larger environmental and geological um, processes that are at play all the time and that are out of which we emerge as, as humans or as animals. And so these are often things that it's very hard to hold in focus, like how do you picture climate change or how do you picture um, geological time? These are things, how do you imagine the world of an insect or the life of a microbe inside our guts? <laughs> and so to me, maybe to conflate two of the edges that, that interested me in the picture, that, that's the outer rim, you know, um, and, and also the, the interior of the gut of um, the tiger, you know. So, so once upon a time, um, you know, it was, I suppose, the material body of an animal, you know, would have predominantly been seen as meat, as matter that's just there that can be studied. But we now know from mm. science these incredibly complicated symbiotic relations between microbes in our guts and in the guts of other animals and the ways that, they, that we all live. And so, to me, again, what is it to study an animal? Well, maybe mm -hmm. you start from inside the gut. Yes. <laughs> Work um, your way out. <laughs> which the publisher um, supported as they have been uh, on an intellectual level and really you know, went out of their way to commission the volume. But our, our lovely designer was ecstatic about the image. It's so beautiful. Um, and it gave us all of these dark designs, all of which cropped out everything that we've just been talking about. So and, all and the edges were gone. They were gone. <laughs> it was all like, it's a beautiful drawing of, that, of this beast's head, you know. It's just like, so nice. Can we just have a close-up of the yeah. head? Or, yeah. <laughs> we definitely have to get rid of those awkward hands on yeah, the side. Yeah, you know, which are kind of a little bit folded over the edges of the book now, but that's kind of okay. 
So, I'd like to bring you back yes. to this question of companionship mm. that you yes, mentioned at the you. start. Um, and John, do feel free to jump in. Um, this, you've obviously produced a companion, but it's also a companion about companionship <coughs> in some sense. I mean, what do, we, what do you understand by cross-species companionship? How do we start to think that, that those kind of relationships? I'll, I'll start off a little bit there. Um, mm. Just because um, words like, you know, cross-species or interspecies or multi-species, that they're really um, kind, of, kind of buzzwords around at the moment, um, as well as the companion. And I, I find it interesting, um, one of the things intellectually that I'm interested in is the ways in which, you know, pre-existing ideas, uh, pre-existing kind of conceptual frameworks, um, kind of negatively affect what we can think. So even though, let's say, multi-species ethnography, you know, in its term, you know, immediately suggests a more than, a, a multitude, an unnamed multitude, you know, there is more than one. When we think of an encounter, we, we still bring it back to me and you. So we, we kind of domesticate um, the possibility of there's a kind of insistence that we would we would like you know the book to kind of really make clear um, that, that we are always and already entangled in relationships, some of which we have, we apprehend in some ways, some of which we apprehend badly, some of which are going to be really difficult to bring to our attention at all, and it's those kinds of questions are actually brought to the table to go with that metaphor, yep, yep. Um, given that, you know, companion, as, as Donna Haraway points out, is rooted in companis, the Latin, with bread, it refers to, you know, bringing to the table and eating together, um, that we are always, in effect, in some kind of company, wherever it is that we, that we are. Yeah, and I think that the question of... Um, you know, I mean, I think to me some of the pressing ethical questions are, you know, are we perhaps in company in ways that we don't realise? You know, and I mean, for example, in, in my research um, in animal studies, it, it began being I was very interested in our relationship with insects and also um, in a movement um, where, you know, people were arguing that we should all start eating insects. You know, and one of the things that struck me when I started to research that um, was that, in fact, we are all already eating insects. You know, they're there crushed up in, you know, our chocolate bars in tiny little pieces. You know, and... Um, yes. <laughs> and in, so, every, in every fig roll you eat, there is a dead there wasp. Is. Absolutely, yes. that's right. There is. And, and so, I mean... You know, could this be a kind of company? We tend to think, that's right, when you eat something, you're not in company with it. But, but maybe, maybe you are when you eat an insect. Maybe you are closer to them if you, if you pay attention to that little tiny bit of wing or folded <laughs> leg in the fig roll. And no, it's not. No, no it, the, the wasp yes. um, helps fertilise the fig yes. and then yes. gets digested into the fig's substance. That's right. Um, so it's it's indiscernible at this stage, but just just <laughs> no, so you know, no, every figure there's a wasp that lost its life, and it was a mutual thing. They were all happy. Mm -hmm. Wasp <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not ours when we're eating fig rolls now, though. Now that we know that. No, well, no. Yeah. So the fig roll business is now going to fall over, I suppose. And um, I just like, like, on this question of companions, um, 
I don't really like animals. I never told you this, Lynn. But <laughs> I don't. I don't like animals really. I have a companion animal, Bob, but he's a real pain in the butt. He's a black cat, and he digs his claws in, etc. But you know, what are you going to do? He needs. He needs some food. He'd be nagging other people. And the point I'm making um, is that I am not an animal lover. I don't love animals. Um, John, I don't John, love. John, out. <laughs> no. But the, on the other hand, I don't love or like humans either, really, <laughs> to kind of, you know, paraphrase Jonathan Swift. You know, I like Peter and Paul. I kind of like my companion cat, Bob, but not much, really. But what are you going to do? He's, he's there now. But, you know. I don't so, think a word of this. He does love that cat. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, I love our hedgehogs. We have two. But... Yes, this thing that often the oh the the animal nuts—they're sentimental. They're, they, for me, it's it's not that the interest. I come from a philosophical and film studies background, and I'm interested in it in the, almost the same way that Lynn said when she heard that morning on the news that you know half the uh, wildlife is now extinct, that or are gone, the number quantity that were here 40 years ago. Like if I woke up in the morning and heard that 20,000 French people are being executed every Saturday for the next year, though I don't love the French or even particularly like the French, I would be concerned that this is happening. I would say, that that's wrong. I don't think it should happen. 20,000 French people should not be executed every Saturday or, or from wherever. And likewise, when you find out about animals, chickens, in intensive farming, and the decimation of the whale population and so on. On that kind of political and ethical level, it just makes me think, well, that's wrong. You know, I want, and then you start to wonder, well, why aren't people as concerned? Not because they don't love animals mm -hmm. or do they hate animals or this kind of war on animals, mm -hmm. as, as, as some people describe it. Why is it happening? And that brings me into kind of interesting philosophical issues, which I'll talk about maybe about the question of, well, some people don't think there's real suffering involved. When 20,000 French people are executed every Saturday, there is suffering, presumably, protest and so on. The animals seem to just, well, they're just there to be eaten, they're for food, uh, or they're vermin, and, and therefore don't get upset about it. Not because you love them, but because you're whatever. And so that raises interesting questions about feeling and how do you know they are suffering. You know the French are suffering, to continue with this labored <laughs> analogy, <laughs> because they protest, they say, oh, no, 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 and we, and so on. They tell us they are suffering, whereas the animals do not, or they, they might struggle a little bit, but, and so on and so forth. So the question of, well, how do we know, that big old question, how do we know that they suffer? And that leads you almost in a kind of domino effect into really big philosophical questions about knowledge and what kinds of knowledge are at play when we say that this cat is suffering. Mm -hmm. Like when Bob is sitting in front of his little bowl and there's no milk in his bowl, like call me a mystic mind reader, but I'm thinking Bob wants some milk in the bowl. And I go, I get the milk, I pour it in, and Bob drinks the milk as if by magic. I knew he wanted, the cat wanted to have milk. So I knew something about his interior life. I knew something about the cat's desires, even though I was just reading external behavior. 
as I do with people around me all the time. So what's the difference there is an interesting philosophical question and leads on to questions about anthropomorphism, which we'll get on to. Which, yes. which we will get yes. on to, but I, I feel compelled yeah. to ask John about more about his cat. Um, <laughs> do you? Um, you, you? You've set up the scene now of the domestic arena and, and the domestic animal and, mm. and, and that kind of question. Which, which some people in the room will be aware that, um, that there's been a great deal of fascinated, um, uh, relieved, interested, um, mystified discussion around philosopher Jacques Derrida's now, now oh, infamous you know, encounter with his cat in the bathroom one day, uh, one morning, you know, one utterly banal event. Um, and, and what's important there... Um, and actually, English philosopher David Wood is, is, is quite good on this because he says it, it, it becomes uncanny because on the one hand, it's home, it's your home, it's the bathroom one morning, one day. It's not anything different from yesterday, probably. Um, but there are, there are, there's a, there are a cat and a philosopher, so not just a man, but a philosopher. A French philosopher with no clothes on. He was walking around the bathroom naked and a cat was observing him, and he was observing his own being observed, and he started to think then about questions of shame uh, in the way that presumably, if it was a human there, a strange human, he'd also be in shock as yeah, well yes. as, and so on. But this was a familiar, this was in every sense, presumably, uh, a familiar cat, a companion, but he talks about shame in the way the previous philosophers, the famous Jean-Paul Sartre, for instance, yeah. uh, the existentialist, said, oh, cats, they don't make us in any way feel self-conscious or animals. They just look at us, they kind of gawp at us. But Derrida kind of flips that whole idea mm. and starts to say that, no, when the cat looks at us, there's an interiority, and that puts us, in a sense, in our place. And we start to think about our nudity and, and the fact that the cat can't be nude because it's got fur, etc. unless it's just had an operation. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say um, something, something simple about it, that, that the spatial thing, that this is the home and it is also a scene of philosophy. So it's not the question of the philosophers that, you know, that are absolutely divorced from um, you know, the, the kind of living world um, or you know, the soppy ones who like animals but um, you know, you know, haven't, haven't got a thought in their heads or something. There's something about this scene that's so compelling because um, it's overlapping. But also, maybe to me, it's it's a sense of, you know, it it completely upends the picture of a, an academic or an intellectual or a philosopher bringing their fully formed, polished concepts to a situation in order to clarify it or resolve it. Yeah, we actually says, because, you know, I look at the cat yes. and I wonder who I am. That's I mean, right. That's a kind of basic question. <laughs> Yeah, so to me it's so exciting to be in a field where, you know, m me as a researcher and the concepts and ideas that I have mm -hmm. are, you know, always affected and responding to, mm. you, know, to, to, to you know, to many others who mm. are kind of thinking me back in yeah, a way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, although perhaps more strangely if it was the fly in the room and um, not the cat. Yeah, because again, it, we can, you we can know, get back to that later. Yeah, maybe. But this yeah. model has done this thing of, of, like, mm. of, of returning the relation to the two rather than, well, yeah, but what about you know, the behind and the over there and the one that we didn't see? The swarm. <laughs> the swarm. With the bacteria thumbs. in the kitchen. There's, there's, <laughs> the a, there's a film, I 
I've forgotten its title. It's a true case of incarceration in somewhere like Alcatraz in the 1930s. Kevin Bacon, Christian Slater. Kevin Bacon is horribly incarcerated in um, um, solitary confinement in a blacked-out room for five years. And he talks about, uh, when he gets out, um, he talks about his only companion being a spider. You mentioned a fly. And, and how that, that relationship yes. was his life. And, and then the spider died or left, and he was crushed at that mm. point. Yes. Um, he kills somebody when he gets out, quite rightly too. <laughs> well, anyone who's read the children's storybook Charlotte's Web, where a spider becomes a political activist and um, um, writes messages in her, la her um, web to, in order to save the pig who's going to be slaughtered. So you never know what spiders might get up to. But in terms of the <laughs> knowing and, and thinking, so philosophy is supposedly this, this study, this love, using the word love again, of wisdom, philosophy, the love of wisdom. And on the other hand, then, it's something exclusive to the human, the homo sapien, the wise ape, the wise man. That's meant to be what makes us unique amongst animals. Of course, we are animals, but of course, there's something supposedly unique about us. And it is this wisdom or thinking or knowing or self-consciousness. It has lots of different names for it. That philosophy has always been studying from the get-go, and hence its name. And it's interesting that the animal then, the way the animal might look at us, and if we look at it back with a certain attention, starts to problematize, starts to interrogate these safe definitions of what is knowing, what is wisdom, what mm -hmm. is thinking, mm -hmm. and even what is philosophy. What is paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yes, as well. Mm -hmm. There's a great question um, in your chapter of the book, John, where you say, what is it to Im imagine an animal philosophy? Mm. Perhaps you could answer that. What is it to imagine an animal <laughs> philosophy? If what uh, we're saying is that philosophy historically has excluded the animal in lots of important ways, what kind of work do we need to do to shift against that? Well, I think it's kind of the sort of global effect of undefining what we mean by philosophy and certain definitions of the human and the animal and so on. Um, obviously, uh, since at least Darwin, there has been this project of naturalization, reinscribing, placing humans back in the animal realm. We are animals too, mm -hmm. but then of course we try to claw back, no pun intended, some, something special about us. So how do we do that? How do we think this continuity that there is now between the human and the animal for all of our behaviors? Um, the interesting thing you mentioned, Udi mentioned attention, that the thing is, that 17th century 16th century philosophy often never gave the animal the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. The animal was always the dumb machine of some sort, by contrast to the, mm -hmm. to the human. But as soon as we give more attention to the animal, the closer we look with our ethology and our, our proper uh, in situ observation of animal life, the more we learn about their types of intelligence, mm -hmm. their types of culture, and that they have rituals, and not just the great apes and the dolphins, but also so-called lower animals. And it's amazing how if suddenly we give them the time, we can actually enrich their lives through attention. But 
it also requires perhaps that we start to extend our definition of what we mean by culture and intelligence rather than just saying the great apes we should treat them nicely because they're clever like us or crows are able to do math and therefore we should be nice because one is nice to mathematicians presumably and, and so on and so forth but on that type of simple enfranchisement by you know just bringing them in bringing them into the fold but everything else cockroaches they stay out or what have you or cats or I hate and so on this doesn't seem to me to be the right way of thinking so an animal philosophy Firstly, I'm not going to give you an answer. <laughs> I don't get, oh, here, I'm, just, I'm not going to point to it. There, there, it's over there, that kind of thing. It will be an ongoing project, I think, uh, of unknowing or undefining what we think we know about the animal, about ourselves, therefore, as animals, about philosophy, about thinking, um, in that way. And it's interesting in, in as much as like this question of anthropomorphism keeps on coming up. Uh, but Mary Midgley puts it nicely, I'll just kind of this little section. Um, Mary Midgley wrote this book, 78 Beast and Man, which really kind of went straight to the heart of the problem with the question of anthropomorphism, because she says, we don't ask these questions. We don't ask, for instance, about pedomorphism. What's it like to be a child? Gerontomorphism. What's it like to be an old person? Andromorphism. Gynocomorphism. Plutomorphism. What's it like to be rich? Although I do picture it. Um, Pauper-morphism. What's it like to be poor? And so on and so forth. In a sense, once you go down the path of, well, I don't know what it's like to be a bat or a spider, then ultimately we cannot jump out of our skin and know what it's like to be anything other than ourselves. At this moment even, God knows, what was I like when I was a child? I can't remember anymore. I reconstructed with Polaroids and so on. And we start to kind of seal ourselves off from the world, such that the only way to reverse it is on the one hand you could say, well, we'll jump out incrementally. I'll only know that which is most like me. Or we could, in a sense, give the benefit of the doubt and start to think alongside other strange creatures and so on. And partly, of course, it's speculative. I can't prove any of these things. But of course, to go back to those old questions, I can't prove that you people aren't all robots, that I'm not totally alone, mad in my little solitary confinement cell with only a spider for a friend, etc. I can't prove any of these things. But it's interesting in the way I was looking at this, um, where is it now? There's this lovely little video uh, called Dancer 3 by the artist Chris Verdonk, and it's about a robot. I'll just read you the description. We see a robot trying to stand straight. He always falls down again but never gives up. He endures this process of trial and error cheerfully and indefatigably. Um, the machine gets to know its own potential. The energy of this automaton is infectious. His clumsiness and constant failure display the optimism of a clown who always tripping, who's always tripping over. Now that, you might say, to talk about a robot in that way is sheer anthropomorphism. You're projecting these elements onto it. But the interesting thing is, if you look at the video, this is a Chris Verdonk, Dancer 3. Have a look at it yourself. There is something utterly, I wouldn't necessarily go with all of these descriptions, but there's something utterly tragic about this robot that is continually trying to stand up. It's almost like the myth of Sisyphus. You know, Sisyphus is trying to get that stone up that keeps going down. And that use of the word tragedy, I think, is important there because... What the robot has, even as a non-human, non-animate entity, in common with the 
human animal is that sense of, of a kind of um, pointless destiny, futility, repetition, the same things that you find in the myth of Sisyphus, but you also find in, in Shakespeare's tragedies, the tragedy of Hamlet inexorably going because of repetition to the end, that there is something mechanical in the human that allows us to see the human and the machine, such that the anthropomorphism is only made possible because we have a continuity. We share various things, both being embodied and in many other ways. I'll just say, leave it that there. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something about this relationship, though, because you started talking about um, ethology and, and careful you know, the study of animals. Um, and being able to to give like you know specific in situ um, you know, kind of observational uh, or being able to kind of gain, gain knowledge in that kind of observational way, but also kind of indicated the ways in which a more speculative, imaginative um, uh, capacity. What if? What might the others be like? You know, what if they are not like me? But what if I can still identify with, follow, or just you know, somehow imagine other worlds. And I think that capacity you know, to imagine uh, and, and perhaps the empathies that it might also um, channel it is really, really important. Um, because I'm kind of interested in, in the ways that even within um, um, ethological or, or scientific environments that might think of themselves as being non-philosophical, they yet transmit kind of quite pernicious and quite damaging concepts, not least around the question of the animal um, and the ways in which that term, um, that um, definite article, that cruel definite article, the animal, functions. You know, as what you know, Derrida himself calls a corral. It says that you know, you know, the, the pigs, the fleas, the eagles, the snakes, the hippos, the you know, the crabs, the you know, they're all the animal. You know, it, it's this homogenization machine that just mixes them all up and just says you are all the same. As well as that material bit of our bodies that gets operated on and cut apart. That, that's, that's not really the that, That's not really us. Except in those cases, it's interesting how uh, <clears throat> the popular use of the word animal, of course, when humans do things to other humans, which are torture and murder and maim, which of course we do all the time, that's why we're not a very likable species, but in any case, suddenly we're not called humane, question mark, as in doing things we are called, they are called animals. You can imagine the, you know, the, the front cover of the Sun or Daily Mail. These were sheer animals 
but even though they were doing something that could only be done mm -hmm. by humans to other humans, suddenly the word is brought back in, yeah. and those right. particular subgroup are animalized. Um, but in the name of what? Like, which particular mm. animal do you think that these, you know, torturers, rapists, murderers, what were they? Were they like grizzly bears? Were they yeah. great white sharks when they were doing this? No, they, no, they were being, they were doing something with a gun and a knife that only a human <coughs> did. So they should be called humans, exclamation mark. Bad humans. Or, oh, no, no, just humans. <laughs> Statistically quite normal humans, actually, when you think about it. But, of course, and, and then, of course, the pernicious politics of subgroups, so-called. They're not really human. They're rats. Um, uh, they're vermin, etc. We must yeah. get them out. We must extinguish them. Suddenly, well, for political uses, the term animal then is another. Not just the criminal classes, yeah. but races, ethnic groups can be animalized in that nasty way. But again, in the name of some mythic animal, we don't exactly know what it is mm. that this subgroup, this ethnic group is meant to be. What kind of animal are they like? Okay, you might say rats, but mm -hmm. why? It's basically to say, we don't want them. We don't want them. Yeah, there are too many of them, and they can be destroyed without crime. Which is interesting yeah. how rats, pigeons, like all the animals that are as successful as we are, <laughs> are the <laughs> ones that we dislike the most. Like when you think about pigeons, they're, they're marvelously you know, ubiquitous, they follow us around. Likewise rats, it's the famous thing in New York that you're never more than 10 feet away from a rat in any part of New York, etc. Also, Be as we speak, presumably, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there goes one there. But um, rats, locusts, uh, cockroaches, not locusts, cockroaches, etc. They are fantastically successful. And in a strange way, they vie with us with, the, with their success. They don't depend on our sentimentality. We can try and extinguish them. They come back at us and so on. And yet, oddly enough, because they are this kind of alter ego, we, we both you know, despise them and hate them when we should be loving them, if they we were are. to love anything. <laughs> our, our successes, I have read studies that kind of suggest that you know, in, in the future there will be rats. It's just the rats. It will just be rats. They'll always be rats. <laughs> what, what, no cockroaches? I thought it was cockroaches were the no, ones. rats. Lots, different, different types of rats, but lots of them. It's interesting, speaking of Derrida and the cat, like, this is something I'm interested in. Philosophers have their favourite animals. Now, it might be back in in a time when the philosopher was trying to say that animals are all dumb machines, they might pick on a certain particular animal. And then you get there's a French philosopher who died... Uh, 1995, Gilles Deleuze, and he loved rats. He loved that film Ben, actually, and, and Willard, um, which has rats in it, if you know the movie, because they, they swarmed, they were multitudinous, and so on and so forth. And he took the reverse view. He, he said that anyone who likes a cat or a dog is a fool. And indeed, that the, the sound of a dog barking was the, the most uh, insulting sound in nature. So he had this kind of, this hierarchy, his own philosophical hierarchy that domest domestic companion animals were sentimentalized, that they were too humanized, and therefore they weren't proper animals for his mm -hmm. philosophical usage, mm -hmm. whereas rats and wolves, these were proper swarming group pack yeah. animals yeah. that fitted his view. But I, th I, mean, I, I think you're right that different philosophers and different people have their different familiar animal in a sense, to think with. But I think there are also those kind of questions which Lynn raised earlier, which is um, what might matter to another animal and how can we, as you know, human researchers sitting here in the room, also, I suppose, practice our research and listen um, and work in a way where we keep open that 
that question of that kind of imaginative, speculative um, kind of um, sense of, um, you know, how might this space or how might this world be for other living things too? And, and I think, um, I mean, what one of the, um, the people who I very much love reading is a scientist who was writing in the 1930s called Jakob von Erkskog. Um, and he is perhaps, you know, one of the first scientists to most, you know, palpably ask that question and break with the tradition of Descartes and this sort of, I suppose, philosophical um, apparatus and the, of thinking that we've inherited. Um, and so he, he argues, well, as a scientist, how can I understand evolution or how can I understand, you know, the animals that I'm studying in my laboratory or out in the field? You know, unless I am willing to open by a kind of speculation that they might be subjects too with worlds. And, and if you take a worm or a sea urchin or a, a fly, then those worlds are not going to be worlds that are like ours. And, and maybe even our feelings of empathy and care and love don't hold. You know, they don't quite work and so to me that that's so interesting like how you know we, we might not be able to enter the world of a fly or a tick you know or a sea urchin but are there ways as artists or as thinkers or as people in our lives that we can attend or listen differently um, you know and to me the only way is highly improvised you know mm -hmm. because all we have to to work with are our bodies, this room, you know, <laughs> the gestures that we have, the senses that we have, the everyday domestic objects that we live with. Like, so how do we imagine these worlds? And um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is a kind of important question and, and maybe also an opportunity to bring some kind of more playful, imaginative thinking into you know, the serious space of the academic lecture hall as well, because, you know, perhaps it's only in quite fanciful and speculative ways that, um, you know, that we can ask those questions. That sounds yeah. like, Andy, mm. might be seg I'm segueing slightly I'm, into, the, I am the, segueing. Into, into the interest <laughs> of your chapter. Oh, we, we don't yeah. have to, we, I mean, we, we might not, we might be running out of time, so I'm happy to... Um, but I mean, very, very briefly, um, so, so my chapter looks at the connection between um, Jakob von Erkskull's work in science um, and a, a woman called Isabella Rossellini who makes these little films about insects. Um, and they're called green porno. I don't know if you've watched them. You can watch them on your phones. Um, and so she takes ethological studies of the reproductive activities of insects and she performs them, but she takes that kind of provocation that both of you have been raising, that these insects, when they're kind of reproducing, they're not objects that we're watching at a distance, but she tells their worlds from that perspective. So she was, if I was a fly, if I was a bee, you know, and she tells these worlds, and she, she in, instead of giving some fabulous multimedia reproduction of what it would be like to see as a fly. She uses everyday objects that she finds around, like eggs from the kitchen or, um, you know, cardboard cutout costumes that she's made. Um, and so she's, she's actively anthropomorphic 
you know, she's admitting her anthropomorphism, but she's turning these very anthropomorphic gestures, you know, towards something else, which is the science that she's read and taken seriously to do with what might matter for these other animals. And she relates it in the first person. If I were a fly, you know, if I was a moth, um, you know, if I was a bedbug. And, um, and these are very short and they're, they're really enjoyable to watch. But I think these are kind of wonderful, you know, provocations that, um, you know, that with all the, as you described, the violence of the way that the animal is mm. used um, and, um, and the ways that we sort of, I suppose, shut down an opening to our entanglement with animals. There's also all kinds of wonderful projects that are, you know, shifting ground and, and maybe opening up different kinds of conversations because if you watch... Um, Art yeah, has oh, a, a, pro yeah. a privileged role here. I mean, we've talk, talked a little bit about what mm. problems in philosophical history when it comes to the animal. Yeah. Does art have a special way of showing us or enabling us to imagine what it's like to be another animal, do you think? But you see, I think philosophy is, can, it has its own art, like its own artifice. We're here in a theatre, you're sitting as the audience, we're on stage. You know, so I think there's a, there's a possibility, of course art does, but I think there's a provocation to the dry academic, <laughs> you know, for us to think about our mannerisms and our ways of studying and thinking and, and, and to fold some of that kind of imaginative speculation into the way we practice. So I wouldn't say art has a privileged place, but you guys might think differently. <laughs> I'm just thinking of a couple, couple mm. of chapters, like, um, yeah. Wendy Wheeler's work on biosemiotics, and she's mm. just very interested in the ways in which metaphor is, is not something that, that humans own, as, as something that we can you know, kind, of, kind of deploy. Um, I'm just thinking about the ways in which um, attention to, there is an animal in this painting, or there are, you know, this, this sculpture is an animal sculpture. Um, you know, some of the debates will will fall back on our, but this is a, a representation, um, it's probably allegorical, and if it's got an allegorical message, that message is probably not about animals, it's actually a coded way of speaking about humans. So there's, there's, there's a, a kind of, um, there can be a split between, it must be either realist and really be about real animals, or it's allegorical and, and, and it's actually really about humans. But there's something that's being muddied between, between these kind of um, two kind of inherited kind of preferences. Um, if we start to imagine that, that animals actually might be creative, um, and we may not be, you know, the ones who also are the possessors of what we call art, as well as, you know, speech and mourning and grieving and dying yeah. and laughing. And you may think there's a beautiful passage in one of the chapters, which is by Aaron Moe, which is called Poetics. And he describes this little spider called the Portia spider. Um, and so, so the, the female spider is there on her web, which is there to catch flies. Um, and the Porsche spider then kind of eats other spiders. Mm -hmm. And so it creeps onto the web, and for the, the spider that lives on the web to approach it so that the Porsche spider can catch the spider, um, it imitates first the flailings of a fly, and then the kind of movements of a possible mate on the web. Mm -hmm and all kinds of other things that might inhabit the web. 
And so um, Aaron Moe talks really beautifully about this little Porsche spider whose brain is so utterly different to ours and whose modes of perception. Um, but having this kind of, I suppose, a creative poetic movement in the way that it plays with signs and signals in nature. Mm. Um, and so I think telling those stories is incredibly important. Mm because it really shifts the idea that this spider is just like a little mechanism. I, again, it, it just kind of repeats this question of um, observation, but also imagination, and the capacity to be surprised by other life forms. Oh, they're not doing what I thought they were, or what we thought the animal um, would always, um, always be repeating. I mean, in my chapter... Um, in fact, we might... Um, Beth... Oh, excellent. We might just briefly um, go to the next slide, just, just to give you a, a kind of sense that, that there are 34 chapters, that there's, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, but we don't have to kind of stay with that um, slide. Um, so I, I took the, the chapter on, on voice, and I, I also did go for the kind of charismatic megafauna and, and, and write about whales, the kind of, um, um, kind of poster child of, of the kind of Greenpeace campaigns. Um, early Greenpeace campaigns and you know, the kind of Save the Whale campaign that was literally attendant on the kind of first recordings um, of what we are provisionally calling whale song. Um, but in, in opening out the question of, of what it is to sing in kind of in that chapter, um, I'm interested in um, the kind of both the philosophy and the science and the question of, of, of a kind of a, an imaginative capacity to move beyond inherited concepts. So while, um, you know, if we go back very briefly to um, kind of uh, classical philosophy of Aristotle and we find that, you know, in, a, in, in any case, every case where animals are making musical sounds, it's about mating always a song of seduction and it's like you know the program is set nature only ever does the same thing because it's not history because that would involve change it's always the same song the same song is the mating song over and over and over again it's just this repeating refrain so that's aristotle dead and gone one would think but then, you know, one finds, and, you know, if you do look up um, whales and dolphins on the internet, um, if you do look up cetacean um, research, I mean, you will find a, a, a wildly proliferating new information on, on a kind of, you know, second-by-second second kind of basis, some of which will still repeat the same song. So, ironically, we human report, you know, reporting on the phenomena of whatever it is <laughs> that cetaceans are making noises about are still saying, ah, mating. That's what it is. Um, even though, as um, you know, the philosopher and musician David Rothenberg, and I think Laurie Anderson has also made this point, um, you know, no one has ever seen, you know, while you know, there's, there's a lot of documentation of humpback whales upside down, um, upside down from the human perspective, that is, but just head down in the water, um, singing, making, you know, repeated phrases, structured sequences of sound. No one has ever seen a female humpback, you know, heading towards them. <laughs> the, 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 the mating story is entirely, you know, fixed by, you know, 
force of repetition. They must be mating. Um, if we haven't seen them mating, it's because they're mating later. <laughs> There's some, uh, or as Philip Hoare, who's actually a really interesting um, thinker and kind of rather poetic writer himself, somebody you know who's worked um, on cetacean uh, research, who swims every day at our cold. You know, he himself will still say that ah, so it's not about. I'm paraphrasing wildly. It's not about um, uh, that we have to see them mating. So we'll forget like, like the visual frame. It's a sound thing because they're acoustic animals. So it's to do with the sound and the sound goes a long way in water. So I know the sound that the male humpback makes is kind of penetrating. The sound penetrates sound waves loud waves thudding through the water gets to the females that way and prepares them for mating. So it's kind of fascinating. That, you know, and I thought, can that be? This is like, it's like the oestrus complex. Um, you could always imagine, and indeed behaviorists have tried to do it with humans to an extent, that you can always have a functional interpretation of everything you do. Everything in the end is about food and reproduction and that's it. And even in the more, in a strange way, this is a different kind of negative, you might say, anthropomorphism. It's not the mm. sentimentality projecting Disney emotions onto animals, but the natural history documentary, uh, which is rife now as a genre, especially on TV, has that kind of, first of all, the eternal life cycle. We will look at all the things they always do. But there is this focus on sex and death, which is actually our obsession. We're the ones obsessed with sex and death. Children in the room, I'm watching more for Gatsby, but we're obsessed with those two things, horror, violence, killing. Look at all of the, you know, the Nordic noirs we watch these days. It's, that's our favorite type of drama, detectives and murdering people and so on like that. So we want that in the natural world. Let's, even though the animal might only kill once, you know, every month much, or something. Much as I want to continue talking about <laughs> sex and death, I'm really conscious that we haven't taken any that's audience true, questions true, yet. True. And it might be a good moment. Before you say anything unsuitable for the younger members I was, of the I was watching it. I was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, please raise, raise your hand if you have any, a, a question. It doesn't have to be related to the last topic. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've scared everyone off now, John. What's the question Hi, um, thank you for the talk. That was really interesting. Um, I'm not quite sure if it's formed as a question yet, but I was kind of thinking about this hierarchy stuff and um, was thinking a lot about stories and particularly Ursula Gwynn, who, a uh, science fiction writer, who talks about, she wrote this nice essay talking about how children's stories often include animals because animals are considered a kind of primitive sort of voice to kind of like lead you into adulthood or something because humans, like, children are also considered kind of primitive to adults and I, don't know, I was kind of thinking about how wondering about that kind of um, sort of interlinking of, of, of hierarchies or something yeah. yeah I mean I, I could speak to that it's something I, mm. I think about quite a lot um, because yeah I mean I suppose what where my insect work began was actually thinking about the relations between insects and children um, because it seemed to me both that so many things that we think of to do with us being as being instinctual, like squashing a 
an ant or <laughs> torturing it or something perhaps, you know, is often played out in scenes between children and insects. But it also struck me that in many of our encounters with insects when we are little, um, there's all kinds of very complicated working out in terms of our relation to other animals in the environment. And that, that in a sense those stories that you all maybe personally have and also that we read and tell about children and insects are kind of replete with a kind of thinking about our ethical lives, but one where the sort of what, what perhaps gets called the instinctual or the animal part of us is still very mobilised and at play. And, and so for me, you know, there, there's a powerful story that we sort of, I suppose, inherit to do with the story of becoming a human and an adult, which is that you might start with this kind of affinity or entanglement as a, you know, between the child and the animal, but this is something that you know, we ultimately need to learn to repress, to, to kind of get on with being kind of adults and grown-ups and to know the world and to research it and so forth. Um, and so I'm really interested in, I suppose, telling different kinds of stories um, where the kind of tangle between, you know, that's opened up between, say, children and insects, you know, doesn't have to kind of then be something that you, you pass away from. Mm. You know, and I think science fiction writing can be one kind of, and Ursula Wynn's writing is sort of wonderful site for that, that kind of imagining of different kinds of, um, I suppose, encounters and um, worlds and alignments and maybe miscomprehensions. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so I think uh, I like the idea of keeping and, and Isabella Rossellini's work is another example of mm. somebody who utterly is drawing on, I suppose, play and our instinctual reactions of disgust and desire and all these affects that are not a regular part of ethics because they're not a feeling of pity or uh, an empathy for someone suffering. They all get put into the room, and so I'm sort of interested in what you know what happens when we let some of those mm. you know those instinctual parts that something like psychoanalysis describes. What happens when that and ethology and and care and ethics? What about what happens when all of that comes to the fore? And again, I think you know children stories about insects and children is a, <laughs> a great site for that. What's come become clear over the course of what mm. we've been talking is that the sense that we need to be more attentive to our entanglements with other creatures and our, the relations which we were always born into. And maybe in attend in more peripheral ways, not always attend in terms of I'm focusing on this animal as a subject. What, what does that mean then, attending more peripheral well, to, to think about, um, to, to allow for maybe our more instinctual reactions to have a, a part of our thinking, you know, so to like to, to come back, for example, to the case of well, what is it to, to think about our relationships to insects while perhaps sitting at an insect feast, um, which is something I was once invited to do where a whole lot of children were in a museum and they were, they were eating insects and they were also talking about them. And so to me, you know, there's the level of the ideas and the concepts and the, you know, how should we care about the environment more? You know, do these small creatures matter? Should we be farming them? Are there problems with this? There are these questions. But there's also 
the taste of <laughs> the little mealworm and there's the, the feeling of disgust or the feeling of fascination and the mobility of that. And these are kinds of attention to me too, but they're, they're more peripheral and they're not like shining a light on a topic and saying this is how things are. Um, but they might, that might be productive, you know, so... Yeah. There's an interesting example from the film studies that mm. uh, in The Godfather, the Francis Ford Coppola film, there's the famous scene of the, the horse's head. So the mafia uh, want to intimidate somebody to do something, so they kill his beloved horse and put the head bloody and all that in bed with him, so he wakes up with oh. it. I can't imagine that actually being feasible. But anyway. Um, and this film led to a raft of protests, people saying this was awful because the horse that we had seen earlier in the film was actually the horse that was killed. And Coppola's response was basically the horse was en route to a factory to be turned into cat food. Yeah. It was going to die anyway, we simply used the body part and we showed it alive and then you yeah. see a body part. But how many of those writing letters in were feeding their cats with horse meat or basically animal feed of some sort that is taken? So in that sense of peripheral attention... Yeah, does yeah, that everyone's going to go home tonight and look at their tins of cat food. <laughs> cat food, right? Dan, don't forget the big rolls. Um, basically, you have to start to think, well, you can actually get ethically sourced cat food. <laughs> and you can also lecture your cat on uh, veganism if you, can, <laughs> if you can try. How's but there is. <laughs> I think he'd like to eat me, basically. I'll sacrifice myself. But there is that question of that kind of global attention. Mm. And it's it, like the way capitalism works, you're always going to be found guilty of something. There's, you, know, you might think you're the best, you're doing so well buying all the right foodstuffs and all the right cosmetics, and, and then it turns out just the fact that you've got a heater that is made by a company that is part of another mega corporation that runs some awful thing got to do with animals. You're very difficult to disentangle oneself from the raft of animal torture. So in the end, my own, my own, my own view is that we just have to wait for the viruses to kill us all off. <laughs> <laughs> Large human animals need to go because no matter what we try, it's going to go badly. But that's my take-home message for you. <laughs> so it's a couple now and there's one there. Maybe we'll take these two one after the other. Hi, um, I found the conversation very interesting and I just wanted to pick up on um, Yavida and his cat and um, it kind of uh, made me think of his work there with Moore and where we try to um, kind of be animal and animals and I feel like most of um, essays I've read either focus on one particular species but also I'm, I'm the problems with if you focus on one species, of course you're not generalizing and trying to speak for all the animals, but within species there are so many different characters like subjects themselves. <laughs> so I'm wondering, it's basically um, a question that addresses the taxonomy of mm. animal studies. So how can we actually mm. talk about human-animal mm. relationships when each encounter is so different? Talking about domesticated mm. animals and wild animals with you, we actually don't have contact at all, so how are we even able to reflect on them if it's not for the purpose of trying to keep them alive, right? Mm. And well, with um, domesticated animals, it's more about how can we change daily encounters or how can we change mm. our behavior, our understanding through, through directly engaging with them. Thank you. Yeah, thank so you. Thanks. <laughs>
think there was another question as well. Yeah. Hi. Thank you. Um, I was interested in the way that like a couple of strands of conversation came out at the same time when then you were talking about listening to this new broadcast about the data of loss, and then John, you were talking about love and your cats, and I was interested in how those two strands in kind of love and loss confront each other or become a way to kind of interpret each other or have their own kind of weird entanglement as a way of navigating each other and how specifically they come together in, I guess, a discourse of mourning or mournfulness and what that is as a possible fault line through animal studies. So like, how can we formulate animal studies in a time of loss? Is there a way to experience that loss ethically? And you know, what are the complications of the discourse of love within that? So I'm thinking, you know, of Deborah Rose's work on extension and dingoes and how, you know, um, she talks about it being like holding someone's hand and they're dying. But like, what is, is there an ethic of being able to mourn together and without that kind of blind, soppy love which focuses on the savable and um, the, the lovable um, and also has this idea of like, just because you've got this one specimen in a zoo, hanging on doesn't mean that all the ways in which this species is meaningful, meaningful meaningfully enmeshed in our world and entangled with us has actually meaningfully been lost. And so how can we kind of have animal studies in a time of loss where not every act, not every act can be an act of saving or helping? Thank you. So two really big questions. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, those were both... Um, yeah, brilliant, huge, and, and, and partly kind of starting to speak to them, you know, to, to answer themselves. Um, I'm not quite sure which bitch to, to, to kind of... Because um, they, they speak to many of the chapters in the yeah, book as well, do. I think. But, but there's also just there's one thing that, mm. that um, the, the use of that I want to pick up before maybe going to the, to the kind of mourning um, mm. was, um, you know, there are so many... You know, you know, there are the, they, it, it, you know, there, it is a, a problem of the sublime in some ways, and, and we cannot, you know, um, you know. So th there is a kind of real provisionality of of, of every kind of foray, but there is, there is something that it, that is good about that provisionality that I think is, is ethically more helpful than the idea of. Um, well, if we just if we just move from animal to animals, and we, if we can just name them all, and just just get the the right sized frame, and fit everyone in the picture, when we have that kind of representational kind of drive, um, a, a kind of simple idea of what is representation that kind of nags at every kind of picture building kind of enterprise that says, well, it's not fair, because it doesn't have X in the picture. Um, and we'll just make it better by making the picture bigger so that everyone can be included. Well, they can't. <laughs> um, you know, there isn't a kind of, in, you know, a mode of encompassing the everything. You know, there is no God's eye view. Um, so I think that, that I, would, I would want to, um, and this is always really difficult, because it's really difficult to feel good about the provisional and the fragile, because they can make us feel really terrible and vulnerable and you know, not at ease, but I, I, would, I would like to shepherd, um, it's a terrible verb to use at this point, <laughs> um, but I, I would like to, to, to make a provisional speculation um, okay as a mode. I mean, can I, I, I yep, know you've gone have a lot more, you, you, you will have a lot more to say on this, <laughs> but can I put in a little um, 
yeah, a little bit, and then you, you get back to Derrida. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, to me, maybe this feels a little bit left of field, but um, there's a real value in a kind of, I suppose, I mean, getting back to, I suppose, us also as researchers, a kind of interdisciplinary research, because very different fields that study animals or work with animals have extremely different ways of, I suppose, paying attention and thinking about those lives, mm -hmm. you know, and it might happen, you know, in terms of, I suppose, maps of habitat loss and extinction. Mm -hmm. So it might be at the level of data that we try, at, you know, that we are in some ways kind of mourning the, the disappearance of, you know, of well, what might be called species. Um, but it might be also, like, say, from within parts of science, the very idea of a species as a concept really just doesn't hold. You know, it is a taxonomy that we have, you know, conveniently used. And for Oak School, for example, you know, while, yes, reproduction happens and, yes, there are species, you know, whenever he describes an animal, it's what relationships it's caught up in. And, and so, for example, you might read a scene that's actually about reproduction, but you never realise it is, because it's, you know, the feel of light for the animal that might trigger its eggs to move, or it's the particular, um, you know, relationships that it's caught up in that are like the larger stage that allows for something that we call, you know, the reproduction of of, you know, say a little tick um, in his example to happen. So, so to me, part of the, the, the other side of that, that kind of openness that you're describing yeah. is a willingness as researchers to come from very different fields and realise that they're very different scales and lenses of narrating and thinking about the lives of animals. And to avoid that moment that we all kind of get as scholars to want our field and our framework to become the, the kind of master explaining one. You know, not to abandon the, the peculiarity of the, the perspective and the ways of seeing that we have, but to work mm. you know, in a way where we're willing to run up against very different fields that might have very different ways of, um, you know, I suppose telling stories which, as you say, are increasingly sort of, you know, well, stories of, of, well, of mourning and loss and also perhaps resistance and rebellion to <laughs> evoke Ron Broglio, who's not here, but he's yeah. our, um, you know, our co-editor. Co um, I would just add also on the question of loss and, and mourning that um, talked about tragedy earlier on. And in a sense, well, I, something somewhat pessimistically, I think it's almost now that we've, with, with words like the Anthropocene we use as in the, the way in which the, the environment has been so uh, strongly formed by human intervention, uh, that with that also comes a kind of tragic recognition, that's a kind of phrase that we, when we talk about that moment in the last act of a, of mm. a tragedy, when we realise the hero or anti-hero finally realises the flaw. Uh, but nonetheless, it must go to its inexorable end somehow. And there is a kind of moment of tragic recognition that we're at, where either, optimistically, if you believe in hope, that we will somehow uh, withdraw our presence 
um, somehow, like people like Dave Attenborough talk about controlling of population, but who's going to do it? How are you orchestrating the control of population? Sounds like fascism, etc. Or, or the pressure on the system is just going to do it for us. There is going to be some sort of ecological collapse, calamity, um, lack of food, the viruses will wipe us out and that kind of, so it'll be an in, either it's voluntary or it's involuntary, but one way or the other, post the tragic recognition, something is going to have to give in but this I way. Think, I think that, and this is just to speak to some of the, the kind of essays in, in here as well, you know, there's a there's a sort of tending in the discourse around the Anthropocene that it, it turns back into our drama. You know, it's the drama of, you know, our failings, our failure to see, we imagine our demise. And so I think there is this other provocation. And then there's a redemption, yeah, that's right, well. Absolutely. And so there is this other question. How do you mourn those other, you know, those other losses? And also how do you open to those other agents? You know, and... You know, and so I think there is a kind of need to find writing that, you know, where, where the, yeah, the Anthropocene is not about the human, you know, that, well, maybe we, we need to abandon the word entirely. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's important as a recognition of, you know, our actions having such enormous kind of implications at a, um, you know, at a global level but in another sense but if you trace for instance like when human story so easily but when you trace our impact like even when we might look at other cultures and i I might have talked about the amerindians and other uh, approach but even the as soon as homo sapiens appears on any continent animals are wiped out large animals or so it's not just you know in the last 40 years huge numbers of large-bodied animals just disappear from the scene on every continent, Australia or wherever they might have been in the, in the, in the kind of earlier geography, um, we have that malign effect. It simply goes with having <laughs> large brains and, and <laughs> hands that can make tools. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm optimistic for the future. <laughs> I'm optimistic for a future without us. I think that's a, a good but, note on which to finish. Okay, so John giving us a future without us. Thank you. <laughs>